Hi, interns, and welcome back. I just wanted to let you know that this week will be a special two-part series, which is going to be the season finale for season one. I will be taking a little bit of time off after this to work on some new episodes and to take some time for life in general, but keep your eyes on your feed for my announcement of when season two will be starting. I'm also looking at adding some new story ideas and new types of episodes for season two. So if you want to vote on your thoughts on those, you can come over to Patreon or to Buy Me a Coffee, where I will have those polls posted uh, to get some of your feedback. To start today's story, we need to go back in time way back to April 25th, 1937, in Mason City, Iowa. As of 2020, Mason City has a population of 27,000 people, which isn't far off from the reported 23,000 people who lived there back in the 1930s. Two of those people were Charles and Dorothy Kolpeck, a young married couple who were adding one more number to that census with the birth of their son, Jerry. After that, they had two more sons who would become little brothers to Jerry, named Larry and Lanny. Larry was three years younger than Jerry, and Lanny was a full 10 years younger than his oldest brother. This is Jerry's story. Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. I'm not certain when the family moved out of Mason City, but I know they did by the time Jerry attended high school. He attended and graduated from Silver Lake High School in Silver Lake, Minnesota in 1955 when he was 18 years old. Silver Lake is not all that far from his birthplace of Mason City. I did look this up to get a grasp on the area and it shows as about 170 miles or a 273-kilometer drive between the two places. However, Silver Lake is exceptionally smaller. The estimated population in 2021 is only 856 residents. And if you can believe it, it was even smaller back in the 50s, with Wikipedia telling me there was about 600 residents at that time. 
Immediately after graduating, Jerry landed a very respectable job. He started working for the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul, and Pacific Railroad back in his hometown of Mason City as a fireman. Now, I'm not going to lie, the first time I read this, I actually read it as him being a firefighter for the railroad, which I was impressed with, despite being somewhat confused about why a railroad needs its own firefighter. However, thanks to Google, I've come to realize that his job as a fireman is a stoker or water tender, which means his job is to tend to the fire to keep the boiler running inside steam engines. You'd think that after me having three kids who are all boys and have all been obsessed with steam trains, that I would know this off the top of my head, but I didn't. These jobs were often sought after by young men who were treated as an engineer in training to earn experience and seniority towards future promotions within the rail line. That promotion, for Jerry though, would have to wait because Jerry was drafted by the U.S. Army in 1960. He completed basic training and then specialized in radio mechanics. He served for two years of active service, stationed in Hawaii, before returning home in 1962. In September of 1963, the following year, that railroad promotion came, and Jerry landed a well-earned position as a locomotive engineer. At this time, he was also still in his four-year period with the Army, where he was subject to be recalled at any time for active service. If you're quick with mental math, then you'll already know that Jerry is 26 years old at this point. And if you're like me and hate mental math, just trust me when I tell you that Jerry is now 26 years old in our story. While we might currently see 26-year-olds as young and still finding their path in life, in Jerry's time, he was reaching the age where he really should marry, settle down, and have a family. And so, the following year, on September 5th of 1964, he did just that. He married Betty Jean Brink, and together they had a daughter, Christy, born October 15, 1965, followed by their son, Douglas, born on May 19, 1967. And nestled in between the birth of the two kids, Jerry was honorably discharged from the Army in 1966. While the young family of four did briefly live in Mitchell, South Dakota, they soon returned to Mason City, Iowa, and stayed there for many years. I don't have a lot of details about Jerry's life for the next several years, but I do know that his marriage with Betty ended at some point. 
I spent a long time deep diving on what happened to Betty. And while I can't confidently corroborate the following information, I did learn that Betty had been born in 1944, making her only 20 years old when she married Jerry. Their two children, Christy and Douglas, were born in 1965 and 1967, respectively, making Betty only 21 and 23 at the time of their births. I did find a source that stated Betty went on to remarry a man by the name of Dwayne Pringnitz on June 28, 1980, and gave birth to another daughter, Sarah Lynn, in 1981. She would have been 37 years old at that point. As far as I can tell, Betty is still alive and well and semi-active on social media. She's just closing in on her 78th birthday. Now, with the mystery of where's Betty out of the way, let's return to Jerry's story. Jerry also remarried ironically, the day his first wife gave birth to her youngest daughter. Jerry married Joe Janet Slade on June 27, 1981. He would have only been 44 at the time of their marriage, which seems weird to me because I feel like there should be more years between the 30s and the 80s, but the math adds up somehow. Jerry and Joe lived briefly in Clear Lake, Iowa. I'm not sure for how long, but they ended up moving right back to Mason City, Jerry's birthplace. In 1986, Jerry took a position as the general chairman of the Milwaukee Road Sioux Line Railroad, and his new bride, Joe, was the secretary there until they both retired in 1999. In all, Jerry had worked for the railroad and the railroad union for 44 years. Amazingly, Jerry's younger brother, Larry, worked alongside him for 40 of those years. After Jerry and Joe retired, they moved from Mason City to Bella Vista, Arkansas. They had purchased a home situated on a golf course, and they spent most of their winter out golfing, as it should be in retirement. In the summers, they would spend time at their lake home in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where you'd find them boating, fishing, and spending time with Jerry's family. Something that came up often in this case was Jerry and Joe's love of football. They were avid Minnesota Gopher fans and attended virtually every home game until 2014 when they moved permanently to Clear Lake, Iowa to be closer to family when Joe was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Joe's medical concerns and the ultimate Alzheimer's diagnosis weren't the couple's first run-in with medical concerns, though. Since Jerry was a respected veteran, he qualified to receive medical care through the VHSO, 
which stands for the Veterans Health Care System of the Ozarks, provided through Veteran Affairs. Thanks to that medical care, on January 30th of 2012, Jerry had a biopsy done. Well, six tissue samples were taken, to be exact, from a growth in his prostate. Those samples were sent off to be analyzed by the pathology department at the VA hospital in Fayetteville. To the relief of everyone, Jerry didn't have to wait long to hear back. The following day, he was told that the samples had been examined and showed no signs of malignancy. It was benign tissue and he had nothing to be worried about. Jerry and Joe continued to live their life, enjoying boating and golfing, spending time with Jerry's children and grandchildren, and making what memories they could as they were aging and were painfully aware of Joe's Alzheimer's. Even Jerry was starting to feel the effects of aging. He went to see a doctor in 2017 about shoulder pain that was impeding on his golfing. And in 2018, he wound up in an emergency room with chest pain so severe he thought he was having a heart attack. With his own health seeming to be catching up with him, in early 2018, Jerry made the very difficult decision to arrange for his wife of over 40 years, Joe, to be moved into an assisted living facility. While it wasn't a choice he wanted to make, he had to accept that her medical needs were becoming too difficult for him to manage on his own while his own health was slowly deteriorating. But he would soon learn the truth and the depth of his medical problems. In June of 2018, Jerry received a call from Veterans Affairs, who told him news he never expected to hear. They said that they had reviewed his biopsy samples from six years prior and found that four of the six samples that had been collected were, in fact, malignant. Jerry had cancer, and he'd had it growing untreated for at least six years. Jerry then attended a full-day medical exam in Des Moines, Iowa, just two days after learning the bombshell news of his misdiagnosis. And the news from his test results was even worse. The cancer had spread through his bones, from his pelvis, up his spine to the base of his skull, and throughout his ribcage. And the prognosis was as bleak as they come. They estimated he only had a few months left to live. Suddenly, Jerry's previous symptoms and current persistent pain made sense. His bones had become extremely fragile from the cancer spreading, and just the act of his muscles 
tugging on his bones when he went about his normal activities he had always done. Things like golfing or fishing spurred incredible pain within his bones. The cancer had begun in his prostate all those years prior, which is a fairly common type of cancer. According to Mayo Clinic, prostate cancer is a common cancer, often slow-growing and usually confined to just the prostate. However, some forms of prostate cancer can be aggressive and not finding or treating it in a timely manner obviously increases the risk that it will spread to other parts of the body. While in the early stages, prostate cancer often doesn't cause symptoms, cancer.ca lists symptoms or warning signs as peeing more frequently, especially at night, strong or sudden urges to pee, difficulty peeing, which can either be a hard time getting it started, a slow flow, a flow that starts and stops, or being unable to fully empty your bladder, and may include burning or pain. Other signs include blood in your urine or in your semen, pain or discomfort when sitting, and trouble with functions overall in the bedroom. If you're not super familiar with the male anatomy, the prostate is a small gland shaped somewhat like a walnut located in the groin. Its job is to make seminal fluid, which is important for reproductive purposes because it acts as both nourishment and transport for sperm. Kind of like a lazy river with floating trays of snacks, I suppose, if we were floating down the river and we were sperm. Because of where the prostate is located, doctors can, and often do, physically feel it for any lumps or abnormalities during a physical exam, especially as men get older and their risk of cancer increases. This is probably one of the most dreaded parts of a physical exam for men because it involves a finger going up places that they aren't used to a finger being. Now, part of the reason why many symptoms of prostate issues seem to involve the bladder and the urinary system is because the prostate is located super close to the urethra. That's the tube that carries urine from your bladder to its exit point into the world. When the prostate swells or becomes enlarged, it can put pressure on that tube, kind of like squishing a garden hose with a rock. Great visuals this episode, I know. While I mentioned age is a risk factor, men over the age of 50 have an increased risk. There are a few other risk factors as well. Those include some of the normal ones you'd expect, smoking, not exercising, poor diet, or being chronically overweight. There is also a genetic component, though. If there is a family history of prostate cancer, especially immediate family members like a father or a brother, 
your risk is much higher. According to cancer.org, it more than doubles your chances of developing it yourself. And this proved to be the case in Jerry's family. Both of his brothers ultimately ended up diagnosed with prostate cancer as well. Speaking of family, Jerry was incredibly close with his family, which I will admit I made some assumptions before I read his story that were a bit inaccurate. I had expected that, as is the case for many separated parents, that the kids would have been closest to their mom and likely more distant from their dad. But it seems that wasn't the case at all. Jerry really prioritized his family and saw his children and grandchildren regularly. He was involved in their lives and all of the extended family saw each other often. Jerry's kids, Doug and Christy, both lived quite close to him and really stepped up to provide more support to Jerry following his diagnosis. This wasn't an easy pill for Jerry to swallow, though. He had always been the stable elder male in the family who wasn't used to needing to be cared for. He was usually the one rallying everyone together for a football game or doing handyman jobs around his daughter's house. It seemed like in the blink of an eye, he had gone from a strong, independent father and grandfather to an ailing man in need of his children's support. He went so far as to express that he was worried he would become a burden to his family. I think it speaks to the kind of man Jerry was. Even facing a terminal cancer diagnosis, his worry was on how it would affect those around him. He felt distressed at not being able to visit Joe as much at her care facility and worried about his kids taking time away from work to care for him. Jerry took the advice of his doctors and followed any guidelines they gave him to attempt to prolong his life, even the extreme advice of no longer being able to lift anything greater than four pounds and not leaving his home beyond what was necessary. As his condition progressed, the pain grew worse. It was particularly bad in his neck and shoulders, and he suffered other symptoms of the rampant cancer, including fatigue, nausea, and swelling from fluid retention. Jerry was put on pain medications to help, but it didn't come without a cost. He would no longer be permitted to drive a vehicle. Effectively, Jerry went from being a lively, active retiree to a housebound terminal cancer patient in chronic pain. Jerry continued to fight the cancer, refusing to give in despite the pain and grief it caused him. In the court documents I found, it was reported that he did rebound health-wise to some extent in 2019 after receiving palliative treatment. He had gained some weight back and looked generally healthier. And it was around this time, 
in April of 2019 that Jerry and Joe returned to the original church where they had been married all those years before and renewed their wedding vows. I really think that despite all Jerry and Joe had been through, Jerry's terminal diagnosis and Joe with progressive Alzheimer's, I think it's such a beautiful silver lining of the story that they got to share that moment together and celebrate their love. And sadly, it would be the last celebration they would have. Joe passed away on May 14th, 2019, less than a month after the vow renewal. She was 82 years old. Jerry's health rebound was short-lived, and he began deteriorating again throughout 2020. He suffered extreme pain throughout his body, at one point ranking his pain on a scale of 1 to 10 at 30, and suffered a fall that broke his wrist. And, of course, a certain global pandemic in 2020 meant Jerry became even more isolated from his entire family. In December of 2020, he was admitted to the hospital so he could receive more attentive medical care. But because of COVID restrictions, Jerry's family wasn't able to visit him, and he had to spend Christmas alone. He did briefly have a video call with his family, but if you've ever tried to use technology in a hospital, it leaves something to be desired and rarely seems to work as intended. Just after his lonely Christmas, he was transferred to a hospice where he hoped he might be able to see his family, but he never had the chance. Jerry passed away on December 31st, 2020, at 83 years old. Had he been properly diagnosed when the original testing had been done in 2012, his life expectancy would have given him another six and a half years with his family. When I was researching Jerry's story, I actually stumbled on it because of the media coverage surrounding a large malpractice lawsuit involving the doctor who failed to identify cancer in Jerry's tissue samples. But I also read about how the family wanted Jerry's memory to be honored and that it had, in a way, become overshadowed by the lawsuit. They wanted the world to know that Jerry wasn't just a name on a court document. He was a much-beloved brother, father, and grandfather. So to honor that memory, we'll end this episode here, with part one being dedicated to the memory of Jerry and what he meant to his family. Join us next week for part two, where we'll dive into how a doctor ended up embroiled not only in a malpractice lawsuit, but a manslaughter charge. We'll see you next week for the final episode of season one. 
For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.